This episode would not be possible without the support of AVMA PLIT. The AVMA Professional Liability Insurance Trust offers complimentary student malpractice coverage to all active SAFMA members. If you aren't already enrolled, visit avmaplit.com unleashed to sign up for free today. Hey, welcome to another episode of Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM, where we dissect topics and issues relating to life in veterinary school. I'm your host, Dr. Seth Williams. Today's podcast, we're going to talk all about wellness. But what does wellness actually mean anyways? We hear so much about burnout and compassion fatigue, depression, but what does that actually look like, both in a veterinary student and as a veterinarian? And even more importantly, what can we do to address these feelings in ourselves and, and those around us? I'm really honored to welcome on today veterinary social worker and mental health professional Janine Moga. Janine is a licensed clinical social worker who works specifically with veterinary students and veterinary professionals. She has so, so much knowledge and support to offer, so I'm really excited to chat with her today about how to make sure we stay happy, healthy, energized, and motivated in our great profession. She has so, so much knowledge and support to offer, so I'm really excited to chat with her today about how to make sure we stay happy, energized, and motivated as veterinarians. Welcome to the podcast, Janine. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you, Seth? Very good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I know you have a huge wealth of knowledge on this whole wellness topic that's become such a big part of our profession, and I really wanted uh, you to come on and excited to talk to you about how wellness affects us as veterinarians, but specifically also vet students, and you know, talk about some things that uh, that we may need to be looking out for and, and ways to help us deal with the stressors of school, and that's going to help us obviously deal with the stressors of of going out and, and being a grow up in real life. So I'm excited yeah. to have you on. I'm really happy to be here. This is such an important conversation. Definitely. So before we get into the meat of today's topic, just want to ask you to give a bit of a background about yourself. Ah, well, I am um, a clinical social worker by trade, and so that means I'm a licensed mental health professional. Um, but I've been working in veterinary medicine now since I think I started, oh gosh, early 2000s. I think it was 2003, wow. maybe 2004. So um, yeah, so I have been really fortunate to have spent quite a few years working um, in veterinary teaching hospitals and veterinary colleges. Um, and so I am technically now a veterinary social worker. So my job is to work with animal professionals, animal people, and animal issues. That's great. I can't imagine there are too many veterinary social workers out there. There, there are a growing number of them, but um, and I'm certainly not the first. I think the we have had social workers sort of find their way into veterinary schools since the 80s, actually. Right. Um, and I think probably almost half of the veterinary schools in North America now have a mental health professional on board in some capacity. So right. it's it's certainly growing, yes, but um, not exceptionally common. So right now, exactly. I, I know that we uh, at at University of Missouri, uh, have a uh, have had a psychologist on staff for a number of years now, which has been a yeah. huge resource for students. So I'm so glad that yes. at least my schools recognized the need. And and I know, like just like you said, 
there are tons of schools out there that either have psychologists or social workers or other mental health professionals on staff to help with these sorts of things. Yeah, really important partnerships. So um, I feel really fortunate to have been in a position to be one of the collaborators. Excellent. So today, kind of like I mentioned before, I really wanted to pick your brain about all of these things we talk about in school and talk about in the veterinary community in general, like burnout and compassion fatigue and um, and, and these increasingly high rates of, of depression and very sadly suicide. I know that um, th- this past week we had a, a handful of, of suicides in the veterinary community, so we definitely know that that there is a problem to be addressed. So mm-hmm. I wanted to, to start off by just talking about what these things typically look like, because I, I have a feeling that a lot of veterinary students, especially that are early on in their vet school careers, may not have experienced burnout or um, just feeling down and, and, and maybe feeling imposter syndrome. So I want to just get a feel from you about some of these warning signs or some of these first indications that, that you or, or a friend may be heading down a path of, of yeah. a little bit of darkness and, and what that may look like. Yeah, well, so I think this is such a huge and important topic because I think none of us can get through life, not modern life, not adult life, without a fair amount of stress. You know, life is tough and it's complicated, um, regardless of what field you find yourself in. So it doesn't matter which discipline you choose. Um, Although for those of us working in service professions, there are unique stressors that that tend to add up over time. And that's where we tend to see, not just in veterinary medicine, but in medicine in general, Mm -hmm. um, and in other service professions, such as my own, we see things like burnout and compassion fatigue become really focal um, because the the stress of the work and the environments in which we work can really cause a chronic stress response in the worker. And so talking about that so that people recognize it and can intervene on their own behalf early, but for students, I think it's super important to talk about as you are preparing to get on the job market, you know, as you're in year four and you're figuring out which, where you want to go and you're starting to look at options for yourselves, sort of thinking about how do I interview where I'm, you know, the people I'm talking to about my next right place, my launching point for my career, so that I know whether or not their practice or their setting can support my mental health and my well-being. Right. I, mean, I think that's hugely important because it goes it goes both ways. Um, but I think for us to be talking about sort of what is chronic stress and what does that do, um, and then how can we counterbalance that, especially when we can't make the stress go away, right? Because sure. there's there are certain portions of veterinary practice that are just going to be tough. Um, so demanding clients, really hard. <laughs> High right. case loads, long work days. Um, we know the financial strain of launching a veterinary career is significant. Um, we know the moral stress of working in veterinary medicine is significant. And so can we always sort of keep those things at bay not always, right? We can't control those. Right. Um, so we have to put things in place that enable us to sort of make sense out of those struggles um, and protect ourselves as best we can and and continue to refill the well so that we're not trying to serve from an empty vessel. And that's really what we're talking about with chronic stress. But we do have sort of a slippery slope um, where 
the problems of chronic stress start to bleed into other parts of our lives, mm-hmm. starts to change the way we think about ourselves, starts to change the way we think about the world. Um, and where we see not only are we having trouble at work, but then we might start having difficulty at home. We start having difficulty in personal relationships. And so there is a difference between chronic stress and mental health issues, right? And it's an issue of scope and severity. Right. And so recognizing the slide, when it's you, it's hard to recognize the slide until you're down. Right. Um, and that's where I think a lot of us get in trouble is you don't realize how much trouble you've gotten yourself into and just how, how overwhelmed you are until you're at the bottom thinking, how in the world did this happen? Um, but, but really important for us to know in advance sort of what the warning signs are of that slide so that we can reach out for help earlier rather than later. Sure. And, and what are some of those warning signs? Well, I think, you know, for a lot of people, again, there's sort of the normal stress and sort of what it does to us. So sort of chronic stress gets, it can really make it hard for us to um, cognitively function. It impacts our memory. It impacts our ability to attend to conversations and to interactions with other people. It makes it hard to sleep. Um, It can make it hard for us to manage our emotions so that we might find that, you know, we're angrier than normal or more dumpy than normal, any number of things. And that's, that can be chronic stress related. Um, So chronic stress and it sort of, it beats you down over time. It makes you feel really physically tired. People can start having physical symptoms. Um, You know, chronic pain um, is really common for people with chronic stress, Mm -hmm. GI issues, uh, cardiovascular problems, really common for people under chronic stress. So knowing those things and trying to tweak what you can, both in your environment and in your response is really important. But then when we start to see things like people, when, when it gets to be not just that I'm worrying about a case, I'm worrying about work, but I'm worrying all the time about everything. Um, when the anxiety becomes a focal part of my day-to-day life, that, that is the slide, you know, that's a slide for an anxiety disorder perhaps. Um, or when we start having panic attacks, um, then we really have to think, okay, something else is going on. This has gone beyond just the strain of my job. Um, it means the brain has tried to adapt to really difficult situations and it's having trouble. Sure. And so we need to do something to bolster it. Um, or the slide into depression, which is where you start to see like a really marked shift in your capacity to function um, and your feelings. So your mood is really changing. And it's not just changing like, mo- you know, moment to moment, you have a downtime at work or a down day and then you feel better the next day, but it's like persistently you're sliding downward. Right. And it changes your your perception of the world. And so you can feel really worthless. You can feel really guilty about all the things that you feel like you're not doing right. right. Um, feeling like you are a burden on the people around you and your loved ones. Right. Um, you know, really starting to feel hopeless. That is the sort of the global shift that we see with depression um, that for me, sends up the red flags. Right. And I think one of the, uh, a big red flag that I think uh, vet students could identify with, and I certainly can because it, it's happened to me, and, and I would say the majority of my friends as well, is that we think about back to before we started veterinary school and before we, we really got deep into this this profession, at least preparing to be out in the, in the profession, is we were so excited about it and 
so energized about the future and, and, and what it was going to be like being a veterinarian. And then one, two, three years into veterinary school, we're just like hating life and everything yeah. is terrible. And, and, and you're kind yeah. of second guessing why you did this, um, right. kind of the running joke at least with with some of people that I've known in school. Uh, and, and I know that we joke in saying it, but I, I, I believe that there's part of this that's maybe not so jokingly is people will ask rhetorically, what would you do differently uh, if you had to do vet school over again? And then we chuckle and say, <laughs> we wouldn't go. Wouldn't do it. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. and, and I think that that, you know, as funny and, and jokingly as that can be, uh, I think that's a huge sign of yeah. just this huge stress and, and not taking care of yourself. Because another point that I wanted to make, and I wanted to ask if you would agree with this, is that our profession, and I think a lot of other professions as well, especially the medical community, is that this chronic stress and, and this feeling of just being bogged down and work, work, work has become so normalized that yeah. that we don't feel it's necessary or, or certainly important to address it. And I think that may be one of the, the roots of all of these, these, these issues. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so much, um, so much richness in what you just said. And so first of all, you know, we laugh at the joke, well, I wouldn't do this again, but actually so sad. Yeah. Um, that's incredibly sad for such bright, passionate people to be second guessing themselves. And what we know, actually, this came out of the recent Merck study on veterinary well-being, is that we have a significant proportion of veterinarians in their first, I don't know, five to ten years out mm -hmm. who would not recommend this field to a friend, hmm. um, which which makes me, again, incredibly sad. I think that's a very sobering statistic. Um, when you say, yes, I went into this field for all of the right reasons, um, and my passion drove that decision and, and got me through really grueling veterinary school. Right. You know, the training program is tough. It's incredibly competitive. It's exhausting. Um, and veterinary practice is tough, right? right? And so it's not just sort of getting through school and think, okay, finally got it and now can launch and everything's better. It's like, oh, like there, there are parts of veterinary practice that are also incredibly challenging. And so how do we sustain ourselves and find it worthwhile, which right. gets to the second thing you said. It's that whole issue of, you know, if you're questioning why am I doing this, I think that's, A, incredibly important. And I think with depression, I, I had a colleague many years ago who called depression the stop sign of the soul, hmm. um, which I always found fascinating and incredibly useful because I thought this is this is the spirit saying, wait a minute, right? Let's let's check this. Why am I doing all this? Um, what is the purpose? And I think when we have an internal drive to join such an incredibly important service profession, and then we find ourselves really struggling to, to be in these training programs, to launch a practice, to sustain ourselves in these really difficult work weeks, um, we have to be able to find meaning in that or it's just suffering. Right. And suffering is not what we're going after here. 
Um, but I do think that there is some part of sort of the veterinary culture that has made this commonplace. And it's not just in veterinary medicine. We see this also in physician and nursing training programs. Mm-hmm. And we're also seeing real significant concerns amongst physicians and nurses um, for not just compassion, fatigue, and burnout. And those are stress syndromes. Um, those are not sort of the diagnosable mental health issues. Those are stress-related syndromes, but they're still very important. But we're also also seeing very significant issues with depression and suicidality in those fields. And so that's when we've slid into suffering and we need to stop that from happening. And it doesn't need to be normal. This does not need to be a part of how we train people (laughs) to be in this work. Totally. And, and it breaks my heart when, when vet students and, and new graduates and veterinarians say that they would not do this again. And I think that, They've just lost sight of uh, uh, of their their why, if you want to yes. put it that way. Um, and of course, there yes. are probably going to be some some instances where a veterinarian did not exactly realize what the profession entailed, and it just didn't doesn't fit them. And, and obviously, that's totally fine. Um, but I think the vast majority of the time is is this feeling of of I guess you would call it burnout. Uh huh. Well, and burnout is actually, um, technically speaking, it's a mismatch between the person and the work environment. Okay. So, and that's, I find that's a really useful way to think about it. It's a mismatch. And so it's someone working in an environment that does not give them or provide for them the resources they need to do their job the way it needs to be done. Right. And so, so that's burnout. And that leads people to lose motivation, right? It right. leads people to um, really sort of detach from the work. That's when they start phoning it in. Right. If you know what I mean? Right. Like we're showing up, but we're not really working that hard because right. I feel like no matter what I do, it's not enough right. or I'm getting bored or I feel really cynical about the job. And that's really a result of excessive strain in the workplace. And that's something we can do something about. Right. We can do something about burnout. And actually, sometimes when people are really crispy, I say, then try to find another way to make yourself useful in the field. Um, but maybe change up your job duties. Right. Or join a different team or try a different application in veterinary medicine. It doesn't mean you have to do the same thing for 10 or 20 years. So get out of emergency medicine, even though you thought that's absolutely what was going to light your fire. Right. If after a while it doesn't and it's just exhausting you, then go into another area of practice and try something else for a while. See if that doesn't reignite your passion and make you feel better. Um, so burnout is a mismatch. And that's where we really need to sort of look at is the organization, is the school providing people with what they need to succeed? Right. And in this culture of doing more with less, which we've been in since the recession. Um, right. Right. Most of us are used to doing more with less and cramming more into our work day. And oftentimes we're not doing it with perfectly maintained equipment. We're not doing it with a full complement of staff. There are all sorts of things that get in the way. Right. So there's also an organizational responsibility here. It's right. not just up to the individual. Yeah. Compassion fatigue is more of an emotional response to chronic exposure. Mm-hmm. to really highly emotional situations. And so that comes from working, you know, really closely with clients who are really struggling um, and come in with their own stuff, right? It's rarely just about the animal. Right. 
they've got their own life going on too. And so they bring that to veterinarians and the rest of the team. And sort of sometimes it spills out all over the place. And that's always really high intensity work. And so that sort of chronic exposure to high intensity, the chronic exposure to suffering, including in your patients, right. can really set people up to sort of have this very sensitive, um, sensitive trigger for right. these things so that stuff that didn't used to bother you now really starts to get to you. Right. Right. Can make you feel and numb and make you, yeah, go totally. ahead. And I, and I was going to say the, the reverse I think happens too. And I think that scares a lot of veterinary students. And, and the example I'm thinking of is euthanasia, which I know is a pretty darn common yep. example of this, but uh, yes. I know what happened to me and it was pretty scary where thinking back to uh, shadowing before veterinary school. And then even my first year in vet school where you, the first time you saw your your canine cadaver, it was incredibly sad, and you kept thinking that you're you're going to be dissecting this this deceased dog. And then the first few euthanasias you see, it's it's the hardest thing in the world to watch. And then as time goes on, you become so desensitized to it, where um, you know obviously you have to be on a certain level, or else you know you don't want to break down at every single euthanasia you do. Um, but uh, for me, that was a little bit scary about how. I don't want to say jaded, but but just certainly desensitized to to something like that. The more time we're in this yeah. profession, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what the best way to to approach that is. Well, and so this is a really good point and an important one. It's that you know, is there a difference between becoming desensitized enough to be efficient and effective at your work versus being numb? Right. And numbness is a problem because numbness doesn't just deaden your response to the difficult things. It also deadens your ability to respond to the good things. Right. And so we need you to feel. Um, we need you to, to be able to accurately sort of have an empathic response to those in your environment, including your colleagues, so that you can tell when they are struggling. Right. Um, and be able to respond appropriately. And when, when we numb it because it's become overwhelming and too difficult, which is a normal, that is a normal brain response. Sort of shutting down circuitry that's overwhelmed is normal, but that doesn't mean it's healthy. Sure. <laughs> so, sure. so, so being able to, to know the difference between can I walk into a euthanasia, be compassionate, be appropriate, be sensitive to my clients and my patients, give them the time and the flexibility that is required to do this well, be appropriately touched by it, but not overwhelmed by it. Right. Um, because that's that's the healthy response and sort of the, the adaptive response. Sure. The, the maladaptive but very normal response um, to brain overwhelm is shutting down. Right. And so that's another thing that we need to just watch for in each other. Right. And I think that when all of this happens, at least from what I've I've read and seen in, in some of my new graduate friends and just heard about with, with young young veterinarians is like you said, numbness and, and just being totally unmotivated about the job. And and I, again I keep reminding myself about why I went into this profession before vet school and um, and kind of what has kept me going is that this really isn't like a, a something you go to every day just to make a paycheck. This right. is definitely 
something that is immersed in your life and so intertwined. And and for many of us, we've wanted to be veterinarians since probably as soon as we can remember thinking anything about our our grown up life. But um, yeah, but hearing so many times that these these young young veterinarians and even even older seasoned veterinarians that are approaching going to work just to make the paycheck. And mm-hmm. that's that's heartbreaking to me because that that shows me that they've just all the steam is, has gone out and they've lost the wind in their sails and and they're kind of just trying to take this day by day and make it through, which is definitely hopefully for the vast majority of of veterinarians and vet students not the reason we got into this. Well, exactly, and in in all honesty, um, you know, if if any of us were doing this for the paycheck, we would have chosen a different field. Right. We would have chosen something much more lucrative. So, right. so, you know, the important thing here is thinking about how can I make sure that my why is still the focus? Like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this to myself as I am in training? Because it is really hard. Right. Um, why am I doing this in the most difficult years post-graduation, right? The first five to 10 years, um, because, you know, you're paying off student loans. You're trying to figure out who you are as a practitioner. You're trying to establish yourself. There's a pretty steep learning curve. A lot of people are operating very independently for the first time in their career. And so there's a lot of pressure. And how can you make sure that the why is the focus of your attention and that the how isn't overwhelming you? Um, So how do I do this every day? How am I going to make ends meet, right? Right. Um, These are the human worries that can really overwhelm us. Sure. All right. We're going to take a very short break and tell you a little bit about this episode's sponsor, AVMA PLIT. PLIT is part of the AVMA family and protects veterinarians throughout their careers starting in veterinary school. In addition to their student malpractice coverage, which is complementary to all active SAFMA members, the PLIT supports students in schools through sponsorships including All for Students, VBMA, VLE, and SAFMA. On September 23, 2019, PLIT is holding an Instagram photo contest. So keep an eye out for PLIT's fall newsletter and emails from your campus ambassadors with more details. Visit avmaplit.com unleashed to sign up for coverage today. Great. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about ways that we can help ourselves or help our friends when they're when they're combating some of the these feelings of, uh, of numbness or burnout, compassion fatigue, what have you. Um, what are what are some first steps or recommendations from you on on ways to 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 address some of these feelings? Yeah, um, you know the same advice I give to clients who are struggling or grieving, um, and I'm in private practice now, but uh, and this is the first place I always start with my own clients. I say, you need to take care of your body first. Your body is the vehicle that makes everything else possible. So you must take care of your body. It's the foundation of your capacity to not just cope, but to grow and to heal and to succeed and to attain the things that you're going for here. So making sure, and you know, this is the first thing that most of us don't do well when we get overwhelmed is we start living on coffee. 
we start living on, you know, the quick junk food that we can get out of the mm-hmm. vending machine in the hall. Oh, yeah. um, we stop eating well. We stop sleeping. We stop moving. And all of those things are really critical for our brain to be able to manage the demands that we're putting on it. So, you know, drinking lots of water every day, cutting down on caffeine, especially for people who are prone to anxiety. Right. Um, because you have to cut down on the stimulants you're pouring into your system. So and for me, I am exceptionally sensitive to caffeine, and I didn't realize this till I got out of graduate school. Hmm. And then I found out how disruptive caffeine was to my ability to sort of manage my day-to-day life. Gotcha. But I, I literally, my rule for myself is after 11 o'clock in the morning, no more coffee and no caffeinated anything. Like straight water all afternoon and evening. Otherwise, I can't come down and I can't rest. Right. So um, for those of us who are a little bit more tightly wound, you have to be really careful what you're putting into your body. Um, learning how to breathe really deeply because that is the trigger for the relaxation center in your body hmm. um, is to breathe deeply, a good deep belly breath or a yoga breath, um, doing it at least three times, especially when you feel yourself getting amped. Right. Um, so just to, to enable everything in the system to sort of calm down and learn how to cue it on demand is a very important skill. And I've done this with clients where I can, and I'm sure in your experience too, with veterinary clients walking into exam rooms and they're jittery and they're not paying attention and they're, you know, talking a mile a minute. And when I, even with clients, when I sit down, I'll say, why don't the two of us take a breath? I can tell this is a really high pressure situation. And part of that's for them, but quite frankly, part of it's for me. <laughs> sure. Sure. Sort of, we all just need to settle for a sec here so that we can do this well. Right. Um, so, you know, let's all take a breath. Let's just try to get into ourselves for a minute so we can think clearly. Um, moving your body. So, you know, short workouts, even when you don't have time, I'm a big believer in seven to 10 minutes a day, a couple of times a day, mm-hmm. um, so that you can get in your 20 minutes at least three times a week, um, because that's what we know actually protects the health of the neurons in your brain when you're stressed out. So you need to be able to get cardiovascular exercise because that oxygen is super important. It helps with the blood flow. It helps you to discharge the negative energy that you are absorbing. If you can get your body moving in a meaningful way and sustain it for a little while. And that's good for your brain health. It's good for being able to think through and problem solve. And I will say too, because I know there's some vet students out there that are thinking, well, I run around the hospital all day. Does that count? No, No. that does not count. (laughs) (laughs) And I understand that completely. Um, As one who has spent many, many long shifts in a veterinary hospital myself, I know sort of when you're on your feet and you're constantly moving and then you get finally to the end of your day and you probably not looked outside all day long. Right. Um, And then all you can think is uh, as if I have time for anything right now. But even if it's sort of... 10 minutes of yoga when you go home or taking the dog for a walk around the block. Right. To do something that is not purpose-driven other than taking care of your body. Right. Um, because that's what enables you to disengage. Because when you're running through the hospital, you're thinking about the 25 things you're laid on. Right. You're not, right. Right. You're not disengaging the stress system. You're not discharging the stress. What you're doing is sort of meeting the demand, right? Totally. Yeah. And I would say, too, that at least for me, the importance of taking a break at some point during the day, because I know that that can make a huge difference when I'm looking back at the end of a long day, 
if I had taken a 20, 30 minute break for lunch or, or what have you, is such a big difference between a day where I just went straight eight to five or eight to six, whatever it was, and, and was moving the whole time. There's such a difference yeah. there. Huge difference. And even, again, it doesn't have to be super lengthy, but giving yourself mini breaks if you can't give yourself a sustained break. So I usually will tell people, you know, every 20 to 30 minutes, I want you to sip a, sip water mm-hmm. and stretch, which is it's enforcing a pause for your brain. Right. And it's asking you to breathe, which is going to help your body to manage the strain of what you're doing. Sure. So do that much and then at least give yourself a couple of mini breaks during the day. Bring food with you that you know is going to be good for your brain and sort of keep, it's going to enable you to keep your energy up. So, you know, pack something. So I was a big proponent uh, when I was working with vet students of meal planning. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have a couple of hours on a weekend in between rotations, um, you know, to do your laundry and take care of your life and all that, do a little bit of meal planning so that you can bring things with you that you know will help your brain to function and make you feel like you can stay on top of things. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I love that too. I, I definitely, well, props to my wife who does that for me because she loves doing that. And that's been a huge, huge thing for me in school. And the thing I will carry into my my working career. So, well, you need to carry it into work because most of the, I, I have done a lot of consulting with veterinary practices and there were only a couple of them that I knew enforced a lunch break every day by closing down the practice. Wow. Um, most people are, because most people are fitting in clients on their lunch breaks, right? Sure. So, um, it's really difficult for people to get into a practice where they're going to ask you to take a break and take care of yourself. So you have to find a way to fit those moments in. Right. I will also uh, add in another idea, uh, something that I'm, I'm trying to take with me into my, my first uh, position out of school is that I think it's time for, for vet students and new graduates to be a little bit selfish in terms of asking for what they need, both from their clinicians and, and their employer or whatever it's going to be. Um, I think, it, at least looking back on my vet school career, uh, it's so common that we get enough pushed around is the right word, but just the, the demands on the vet student is so high and we don't, if we're, if we need some additional support or, or some, uh, an hour off or, or time to go to a doctor's appointment, whatever it is, we're either too afraid to ask for it or even worse. Um, some clinicians may not see the importance of something like that and they, they deny our request. So that gets us deeper and deeper into this, this, this rabbit hole. So, um, that's, that's one area that I, I wish, vet students in the trenches now would would do for themselves if they need more support either academically mentally physically whatever it is to to ask their their professors their clinicians deans whatever it is uh because that's going to keep you healthy and, and happy in vet school and then on the flip side of that after vet school definitely asking your employers for for a break or if you need a day off here and there, whatever it is. Uh, the big thing for me is mentorship, which I know is another mm-hmm. hot topic in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in vet school right now. And, and I'm, I'm kind of finishing up my, my job search here before graduation and has been, I've, have been very surprised at the, the, the lack of, of formal or not even formal, but, but, um, but mentor or, or, uh, coaching, training in these jobs for new graduates. Um, I think a lot of them just feel that we graduate, we go out and work, and and 
pedal to the metal, like, let's just go, which is right. not going to end very well for us, in my opinion. So um, be selfish. That's, I guess, my my take home there is, is ask for what you need uh, within reason, obviously, but um, don't don't get used to, to being bogged down and, and like kind of bringing this back full circle. Don't don't let this chronic stress become so normal to you that you become uh, become just so desensitized to it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is really important for us to um, talk about is that it's really important for you to advocate for yourself. It's important for you to ask for what you need. It's important to reach out for help. Um, And we need to be taking care of ourselves first or the quality of our work declines. So keeping that in mind and always making sure that you're making space for your own well-being is important. And then the Mm -hmm. other part of this as a sort of a caveat um, is I want to encourage all of you when you're going out into practice and you're, you know, talking with practice owners and managers about how do you set up the practice, how do you take care of your people, what are the, what's the package for, you know, time off? How do you make arrangements for people who need, you know, X, Y, Z? Do you have flexible work schedules? So all of the things that are important to you that you know you will need for your own well-being. Ask those questions and then recognize that this sort of attention to wellness in veterinary medicine is actually really new. Um, and this is a culture change that we are trying to make and it's not without pains. And so for folks who've been in practice for decades, um, these are very novel and strange conversations to be having. And it might not land very well because there's a, there's a lack of shared understanding here about why we might need to do things differently. why these kinds of work arrangements might not be incredibly functional. And so when I'm talking with folks about how to have these conversations, I I often say a couple of things. One is be really clear about what it is that you need, and you don't have to go into great detail, but you can say, I just, I am going to need to take this much time every other week for a doctor's appointment that will be a standing appointment, right? right? And then here's my proposal for how I'm going to make sure that does not, my absence does not impact the rest of the team. Sure. So that you can sort of preempt the person you're talking to with all of their concerns about what will happen when you walk out, (laughs) right? Right. Uh, Because of the way a a lot of us are scheduled in practice, we are so overbooked, we are so busy, we run behind. And so the moment anyone tries to leave on time to catch their kid's soccer game, you're going to get flack for it. Right. And, and that's not the culture we want, but that's the culture we're working in. So how do we sort of help ease people into these other conversations um, and better enable people to help us meet those needs? Sure. So here, here's my plan for making sure that that doesn't impact the rest of the team. Here's what I'd like to propose so that I'm not the only one who gets this. You know, I'm really well aware of what might happen, but here's how I'd like to propose that we schedule me on the days when I'm going to, you know, I'll come in an hour early and see an earlier appointment. Right. I'll do any number of things, to, or I will schedule my appointment at the very tail end of the day. Right. Um, whatever it takes to try to make sure that you're also acknowledging that um, these shifts are hard. Right. Right. <laughs> right? It, it blows my mind that that it's taken this long for us to address this and, and that it's become so normal in this profession to, you know, to, to not be addressing these things. 
Well, and it's not just in veterinary medicine. So I don't, right. I don't want the folks in this field to think that um, this is something that we have failed at. I, I want to normalize this. It's in most service professions, we do a really poor job. Service professionals largely consider themselves to always be giving more and more and more because our needs don't matter. Right. Um, and that is sort of the subtext most of us were trained with. Sure. And so it takes, and so when we then are, have been in practice for a long time and we are the practice owners and that's how we were trained, um, then it's really difficult to hear from folks who are new graduates and newly entering the profession that they need all these things that we didn't have, right? right. right. So the knee-jerk reaction, which is not, which isn't always productive, but it's understandable, is, well, I never had those things. Why, right. why right. should you have those things, right? right. And um, then you but, feel like a dummy and, and right. a weakling. Right. And then everybody feels ashamed, and then the conversation falls apart, and then we've not, got, we've not gotten anywhere. So to really be able to say, I recognize that not everybody asked for this, and here's how I would like to propose we make it work. Right. I'm open to your suggestions, and these are things I really need. Like, and so there's a difference between what I want, which is a shorter work week, and right. what I need, which is, you know, on this day and this day, I have to be able to get out from my kids' parent-teacher conference. I need, I need to be able to pick my child up from daycare. Right. I need to be able to, you know, get to the doctor for my own health and well-being. Right. And so how do we, and I need to take a vacation. <laughs> Everybody needs that? time off. Right. So how do we make sure we, we try to keep those conversations open and that we are focused on problem solving, not shaming? Right. Right. I would also add in there that I'm a pretty big advocate for uh, taking time to go talk to somebody if mm-hmm. if, if you're uh, in need to, to vent or just get a third party opinion. Um, going to see a mental health professional, while if you've never done it before, can can be difficult. And some people think there's a stigma attached to it, but I can assure you there is not. Um, and it can do so much, so much good and so much. Uh, there's so many beneficial uh, things about going to, to talk to someone about, about this stuff because bottling it up, as, as everyone has heard many times over, uh, is just a recipe for disaster. So uh, be it, again, a mental health professional, a friend, uh, if you're in school going to talk to one of the deans or a professor that you, that you have a close bond with can make such a big difference too. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think uh, there's some evidence that in... In veterinary medicine, um, there's a slightly less open attitude toward mental health, mm-hmm. and and we know that uh, those in the veterinary profession tend to reach out less for professional help, and they tend to stick within their network. Um, and the and so it's really good that we have um, a close profession. Right. You know, it's, it's a pretty small world. A lot of people know a lot of other people in the right. profession, and, and you get close to the people you're trained with, and that those connections follow you for your entire career. Sure. And so having that kind of support is really, really important. And um, as a mental health professional, I will say that even in my own life, you know, I reached a point in graduate school where I thought, um, I don't know why this is so hard and I don't know how it got this hard, but I'm not sure I'm happy and I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Like I felt like it was me. Yeah. Um, and reaching out to someone who was outside of that world 
um, who could hold it for a little while was tremendously helpful sure. um, and gave me a, per- just helped me to broaden my perspective so I could problem solve a little bit better because I was so overwhelmed I couldn't even think through it anymore. And so just having someone from outside who's not embroiled in it, who's not up to their eyeballs in that same kind of stress, um, and just saying, man, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm not feeling good. I'm not happy, um, or I am anxious, and all I do is worry, and I can't get a handle on it. You know, there is no shame in saying, I am human, and this is hard. And the vast majority of mental health professionals have those conversations with people really bright, just incredibly dedicated, um, capable people all day long. I mean, those are the conversations I have all the time, is this is not you, and let's think about what else might be useful here. Right. Yeah. So reach out, ask for help. Very good. Yeah. That, uh, huge. Cool. This has been absolutely fantastic and and definitely a much overdue conversation, a much needed conversation for, I think, every vet student to hear and and every new graduate, uh, any veterinarian to hear. So before we go, I have one other question for you, which is what, if any, uh, resources or books or anything that you'd recommend? Uh, especially for a vet student or a new graduate uh, to be looking into about this stuff? Yeah, I think there there are wonderful resources out there that did not exist even five years ago. Um, and so the AVMA, just in the last few years, has actually done a really good job, and it was practitioner-directed, a really good job of putting together wellness and well-being resources for veterinary professionals. Mm-hmm. It's on the AVMA website. They have all sorts of information, um, self-testing capacity, so you can sort of assess yourself, figure out where you fall, determine Mm, where you need to maybe put some things in place to support yourself. They have all sorts of suggestions for where to go if you need some extra help. And so that's a really good place to start. I think in your own community, depending on where you find yourself practicing or launching, wherever you are, you know, you may or may not have, if you're a veterinary student, you might not have a mental health professional embedded in your college. If you do, use them. That's what they are there for. Um, And there's no issue too small, no issue too large to take to them. That's their job. Um, If you don't have someone available within your veterinary college, um, usually student health services have wonderful services for professional students, and they deal with professional students all the time. So it's not just for undergraduates. Make use of the resources you have that are on campus and ask for the flexibility to go seek help. Um, When you're out in practice, sometimes people say it's a little bit harder to find someone who will get it, um, and it's harder to fit it in. And so the good news is we are trying, you know, we're, we're training more and more mental health professionals to understand um, the veterinary world now. So it's a little bit easier now to find a, a mental health professional who can sort of get it and speak the language than it used to be. Right. Um, look to see if, if you are located in um, a state that has... Um, a college of vet med in it that's got an embedded mental health professional, shoot them an email and say, do you, do you have any recommendations? 
Right. Like who, who would you recommend? Right. Um, because many of those folks have a short list. I know I did when I was working in the university setting. I always had a short list of people I would send clinicians to and, and technicians to. Um, check with your veterinary medical association because um, thankfully um, some of them now are also developing their own programs. Um, oh, I know I'm in Virginia now and the veterinary medical association here actually contracts with an EAP specifically for veterinary medical association members. So they, they have put something in place so that people can make a phone call, um, at the end of the day and say, I am struggling. I need help. This is what I need information on. And it's at their fingertips. Right. So, yeah. So check around for your local resources, but certainly, um, for any of us, any of the veterinary social workers who are out in the community, don't hesitate to reach out to any of us. We are happy to direct people. That's great. So cool. And where can we find more information about you? Um, well, I take um, I take email from anyone. So anyone can shoot me an email. I'm at moga.janine at gmail.com. That's my consulting email. And I am a clinician in a private, a small private practice here, a group practice actually in Virginia at wholejourneywellness.com. Awesome. Cool. Well, Janine, this has been absolutely fantastic blew my mind in so many ways and definitely a lot of great things to think about. So um, I know that anyone that's listening uh, will take so much away from this. So thanks for your time. Thanks for your expertise. This was really, really great. Oh, just thank you for inviting me, Seth. Thanks for all you do. No problem. Well, thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. All right. One more huge, huge thank you to Janine Moga for joining me on the podcast today. And one more big shout out to this episode's sponsor, AVMA PLIT. Be sure to take advantage of their complimentary liability coverage for active SAFMA members by signing up at avmaplit.com slash unleashed. And last but certainly not least, thank you for listening to the Vet School Unleashed podcast. If you liked this podcast and other episodes, please leave me a review on whatever platform you're listening on. It's a really great way to help spread the word about the podcast and give me feedback about what you like. For resources and more information about the podcast, please check us out at vetschoolunleashed.com. Find me on Instagram at SethTheUnmostVet or on Facebook. You can also connect with me via email at Seth at vetschoolunleashed.com. I would love to hear your thoughts on today's podcast and any ideas for future topics. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time on Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM.